Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Let's just come back together. Just before we start, I... um, Normally I, I, I like to read the text before I pray, but I just want to pray for us this morning uh, as a church. Father, you, Lord, we're here today not because um, we've got nothing else to do on this bright, sunny morning. Lord, we're not here because uh, we get paid. Uh, we're not here even because we think our needs are so great. Uh, Lord, we're here because there's something about you and there's something about your church and your people coming together and that is part of how you do it. And Lord, there's something about the way you've led us to this place in Brixton. Uh, God, you know the truth is we didn't choose to come here. You know this was not a strategic decision. You know that you led and guided us and that increasingly, oh God, you're making it clear this is where we are to be. And Father, for every person here, we've been led here by different ways and different routes. But God, we believe in your sovereign plan, that you know all things. That if I'm here today, It's because you have called and brought me to this place. And Lord, for that I'm grateful. And I ask that your word might speak to us. I pray for open hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Two weeks ago I began a series on Habakkuk. And, uh, you know, you would be right in thinking, why on earth? Why Habakkuk? Of all the books in the Bible, there are some whose names are easier to pronounce and to spell, and there are some which are just much more obvious to to preach on. And so um, I spoke on it two weeks ago. Uh, Last week I I interrupted that uh, to talk about, uh, I suppose, to talk a little bit about my journey in the church. And this week we, we return to it. And uh, last time we answered or looked at the question, I wouldn't say I answered it, God, why do you tolerate evil? And we looked at that out of Habakkuk 1, and that I just talked about this journey of faith that we're on. I want to say a little bit about why I'm speaking out of Habakkuk, because when I think about what to speak about, um, Habakkuk doesn't automatically come to mind. Yeah? It wasn't like the first, oh, I've not spoken on Habakkuk for a while. It didn't come to mind in that kind of way. It was a bit of a journey that got me here. And it began with a, a conversation with my daughter, Rihanna, who's doing very well in Milton Keynes, by the way, as is Ruth. I got an email from Ruth in, uh, in, uh, in Redding, in California. She's also doing very well. Um, and I was having a conversation with Rihanna, and it often, unfortunately, gets quite heated. And, and we're chatting in the car. I'm dropping her up the hill. Um, and... Um, and the truth of it was I was stumped by what she was saying. I couldn't really answer. 
It, she had been at school having a conversation with a guy, and the guy was saying to her, he was talking about suffering and evil in the world, and he was saying, do you know what, if, if I were God, I, I just wouldn't do that. If I, if I were God and I had the power to, to not let that happen, I wouldn't let it happen. Um, and, and she was obviously stumped with that, that point. It, and he wasn't saying, it's not that I'm not open to God, but if I, I'm not sure I would allow that if I were God. And it stumped me. So I, I, and I, I couldn't think of the textbook answers to the, to the question. But I realised that both for her as a Christian and for her friend who wasn't a Christian, this was a hurdle to faith. For her, it was a hurdle to deeper faith. And for him, it was just a hurdle to God. If, if God is as great as people say he is, why, why does he allow that? It doesn't make any sense to me. And if I were him, I wouldn't. That's, that was the sort of thinking. And I remember not knowing exactly how to answer and the conversation ended, but I know I had been provoked in my spirit by it. Um, and, I, and I didn't, you know, I didn't have any, I didn't know where to go with that. I just, I just sort of left it. And then in my daily readings, I ended up reading Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk 1, uh, Habakkuk asks this question of God, why do you tolerate evil? I, you know, he, like he doesn't understand. Why do you allow it? It doesn't make any sense to me. And as I read that question, and, as I, and, I, and I sort of lingered, Habakkuk's only three chapters long, but for me, on my daily readings, it's normally a chapter a day, but it, I lingered in Habakkuk for ages. For ages, I was just reading it and reading it as I began to see that, oh, man, God helps us understand some things through this book about that question. And I realised that that question wasn't just a question that young people were asking, because these were young people, Christian or not, but they're questions that we all ask, and that for some of us as Christians, they are genuine barriers to deepening our faith. We get stuck there. I don't understand why God does you know, so I just don't even, I don't even think about it, but I don't know why God allows certain things. And so... Um, and so I, I remember when I read that and I, remember I did an update about it and I remember thinking to myself, oh, I'm going to do something on Habakkuk. I didn't know when and it just came about. Um, so when you then get into the book of Habakkuk and you're talking, if you like, about evil and suffering, for some of us, it feels a bit disconnected. It feels hard to relate because that's not our experience. We're not going through anything particularly deep at the moment. We're not having any suffering. Maybe we've not had any real... Suffering, And so how is it relevant to you then? In some ways, it's a bit of an inoculation. It's like a jab. Yeah? You know, when you're a kid and you get the measles jab and you get a little bit of measles in order that you avoid measles or the mumps or, or whatever it is. Or, or I know many of you, you sort of travel abroad into far-flung places and you have to take jabs in order to protect you from certain illnesses. This series on Habakkuk will help you when you do suffer. It will help you. It will help you to understand, oh my goodness, God. God, you've got ways that I don't know about. And thirdly, I found, as I began to look at it, that it was a journey. Faith was a journey. Faith is a gift, but the development of faith is a journey. It's not something that immediately comes because Habakkuk has to wrestle with some things that he does find quite difficult. And I know that we find difficult. 
But, but through the story, he moves from a place of asking the question, God, why do you tolerate wrong? He wrestles and all that kind of stuff, and he ends up in a place where he worships. And I'm like, oh, God, yeah, I, I want to go on that journey. I want to end up in that place where I worship. But, but, you know, we could run there quickly, but you can't go there too quickly because then you miss. You miss what he's trying to tell us. And so we come to Habakkuk, still chapter 1, verse 5. I'm just going to read a few verses, verses 5 to 11. So Habakkuk has, has given God his problem. He's outlined it. I talked about the idea of lamenting, learning to pray, and deep, deep prayers, not knowing the answer, but deep prayers to God. And then God answers him. God answers Habakkuk. And he says this. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and they promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps. They capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. So God answers Habakkuk, but he just doesn't answer him in a way that Habakkuk would have imagined. And that's why I've entitled this talk, Surprised and Shocked by God. You see, I think this is one of the biggest challenges for the Christian. One of the biggest challenges that we face today is to do with our expectation. We have expectations about life and we have expectations about what we think God is like. And we really, really struggle when life doesn't meet them. We really struggle with it. And it's so important that we at least understand that's what we do because that is the very reason why the Jews rejected Jesus. The Jews rejected Jesus because Jesus did not present himself as the Messiah they imagined. And they could not, in the end, they just could not accept that he could be the Messiah. And there were little reasons, there were little bits of the law that they believed. I mean, there's one of them it talks about in John, uh, where one of the chief priests says to the people, everybody knows that, uh, that the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. Everybody knows that. Yeah? So it's almost like that little reason alone meant he was never going to accept Jesus could be the Messiah because the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. Or there was another one, you read about it, in, I think it's in the book of Malachi, where it says, cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. How on earth can Jesus be the Messiah if he hung on a tree? He can't be. It was things like that that made the Jews reject Jesus. 
There were lots of them, lots of little things, lots of little laws, lots of little expectations. He didn't come riding on a big horse. He didn't come with political power to conquer, yet he came as a servant. He did not come in the way they expected, so they rejected him. And we, in many ways, we're, we're, we're no different in terms of we would also be susceptible to rejecting God because he doesn't come to us as we imagine he should. He doesn't present himself in the way we expect. He doesn't use what we think. He doesn't operate in the way that we have in our minds. I'll tell you this, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I'll, I'll tell you this story. When, when Pauline and I um, knew we were coming to Beacon, and um, uh, I, was, I was in the process of writing a book, and we were talking to a friend of mine, who's a leader of a, of a large church in the States. And I remember him saying to us, gosh, when you write that book, it will change your life. Yeah, do you remember that conversation, my love? Yeah, yeah. she laughs. It will change your life, and then you'll be leading this church, and, and you'll be writing a book, and, and, and you'll be doing really great type of thing. And we thought, oh, we're waiting for the life change. Yeah? This is what we did. I remember at the time thinking, gosh, we're just going to brace ourselves. It was a bit like we'd won the X Factor. Everything was going to change. Yeah? I'd become president or something, and, and by definition, it was going to change. Yeah? And uh, you know, we have to be honest and say, it's been nothing like we thought. <laughs> yeah? What happened after the book was nothing like we imagined. Nothing happened after the book. <laughs> nothing happened. We wrote the book. I, I, was, I was practicing my auto... I wasn't really doing that. Um, but I wrote the book, we came to Beacon, and, and what we experienced was absolutely nothing like we would have expected. Nothing. There was, there was nothing in it that in any way reflected what we thought. Nothing. And what that does is that throws you. But it, it can throw you in a number of places. Praise the Lord, it threw me to God. It threw me to him because I thought, I don't have anywhere else to go here. Yeah? There's no human wisdom that's going to help me here. It threw me to God. And, and, and I, had to, I had to accept, God, you do not do things as we imagine. You don't function in the way that we think. And if I'm not careful, I will reject the very thing you've got for me because it hasn't come for me in the way I expected. I will reject it. And so this is what happens in this passage. You see, Habakkuk, though he's struggling and all those things, he has a particular view of God, and we'll look at that next, next week. Habakkuk had certain, certain values. He had certain understandings about God. But even before we get there, we can say this. The last thing he was expecting was God to use evil people, evil people, to come and punish his people. That is the last thing Habakkuk expected to hear. And God knew that, which is why he says, look and watch and be utterly amazed. Yeah? If somebody told you what's about to happen, Habakkuk, you wouldn't have believed them. You wouldn't have believed them. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. You're going to do what? It challenges him. And next week we'll look at how he responds to that challenge, but it doesn't make any sense to him. Yeah, he has to grapple with that reality. God, I don't get this. I'm surprised and I'm shocked 
by what you've just told me. I don't understand it. But before we do that, I just want to say a couple of things about why it's not as bad as it sounds. Yeah? It's not as bad as it sounds. Because what it tells us is this. These are just a few things that that this passage tells us. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. And then he describes them. The first thing it tells us is this. God is in control. He's in control because he is going to raise up the Babylonians. He doesn't describe the Babylonians as a people who are, you know, oh, I've noticed the Babylonians and they're getting a bit out of control and I don't know what to do and they're going to come for you. No, he says, I am going to raise up the Babylonians. I am going to do that. You think, oh, my goodness. First of all, I'm absolutely shocked by that. But secondly, I think, oh, my goodness, you're in control. You're going to do that. God, you're going to raise up the Babylonians. He is ultimately in control of all world events. So if you take hold of even that one little truth based on that one scripture, God is, God is in control of all events, you won't worry about what's going on in the Middle East. You won't worry about what's going on in Syria. You won't worry about the Islamic State. You won't worry about what's going on in Ukraine. Why? Because God is ultimately in control of everything. He's ultimately, he's not out of control. He's not sitting there going, oh my goodness, what's happened? Those silly Americans, why did they say that? They've caused all these problems. No, he's not saying anything like that. He is ultimately in control of every situation that we see. The second thing that it tells us, which is quite positive for us, is God knows everything. He knows everything. So after saying, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, um, it doesn't take Habakkuk to say, God, can I just, do you know them? Are you, are you aware of them? What they're like? Their reputation? Oh, enlighten me, Habakkuk. I didn't know. No, God doesn't do that. What God says is, I'm going to do something. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, that ruthless, impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth. They seize dwellings. They are feared and dreaded. They are a law to... God knows them. He knows the Babylonians. He knows them inside out. Their horses are swifter than left. Oh my, you know them, God, and you're going to raise them up. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. So God knows everything. And, and I know this can test us because we can still ask the question, then why? Why? But we can just stick with the truth for one moment. God is in control and he knows everything. He's in control and he knows everything. And it means he's a little bit even bigger than we think because how on earth can God be in control and know everything and everything's happening in the way it seems to be happening? He must know things that I don't know. He must have powers I'm unaware of. He must see things from a perspective that I don't see things because from my perspective, it looks out of control. But from his perspective, he's fulfilling his purposes throughout the earth. So Habakkuk prays about his people. He prays about Judah. And they're not too great. But the Babylonians are far worse. Habakkuk complains about an internal issue in Judah. 
God, look at this. You know, we're not following the laws. We're not being righteous. The things are not working out well. Habakkuk says, look at this. God says, look at that. God's in a very different place. He broadens the picture. He doesn't look at it in terms of the way that Habakkuk is looking at it. And we must get that. We must. Because if we don't get that, we will judge God and we will misjudge him. We will make him out to be something he isn't. We will make him out to be powerless when he's not. We'll make him out to be uncaring when he isn't. The Bible tells us that the Lord is gracious and compassionate. So I have to believe that's true. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But it also tells us that he's holy and he's righteous. I don't know how many of you um, watched some of the World Cup. Just put your hands up if you ever watched the World Cup game. A few of us, okay, some of us, we saw it, but we're not going to admit that we even watched the World Cup. Yeah. yeah. But there was one game in the World Cup which was quite defining for World Cup history. And it was the game between Brazil and Germany in the semi-final. When Germany beat Brazil, 7-1. 7-0? 7-1, I can't remember. What was it? So Brazil scored, did they? Okay. <laughs> it mattereth not. <laughs> yeah? But it was defining in World Cup history because until that moment, if ever there was a country that epitomised the World Cup, it was Brazil. You know, if someone had come in here and said they were Brazilian, we would expect to see the football. We would expect them to go out there and do some tricks and you'd want them on your team. Even if you'd never seen those things, you'd think, well, you must, there must be something in you. You're Brazilian. Yeah? The way... The world viewed Brazilian football and the way Brazil viewed itself about football. It's won the World Cup more times than anyone else. It has arguably the best player ever in Pelé. So, so all of these things were there and it was host in the 2014 World Cup in its own place, its own land. And yet in that semi-final, and it managed to win a couple of games and we all thought, really? Are they that good? We're not sure about them. And in the semi-final, it all comes out. Yeah? Brazil are not as actually good as we thought they were. Yeah? So in their own land, among their own people, where football was a bit of an idol, they get slaughtered. Yeah? For them, they do. They get, and, and for them, that would be massive. For each individual player, they might get over it because they're still getting £50,000 in the bank every week for playing for a club. But for the, for the nation... That identity that had linked them to football really at that moment got shattered. It got shattered in one moment. And they won't recover quickly from that. It was almost like this thing, it, 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 it came upon them and it completely shattered them. You see, the Babylonians, and I'm not, this wasn't the intention of the Germans, the Germans were quite, actually they were, Kind in that game, really. They could have been more ruthless than they were. But the Babylonians were, were a ruthless people. They were impetuous and self-governing, which means that they were impulsive and they didn't care about rules, only their own rules. Can you imagine living around people who were impulsive and they didn't care about anything and they were bigger and more powerful than you? So they weren't going to be, the reason wasn't going to help 
moral code wasn't going to help because they didn't care. That would be dangerous, which is why they were feared and dreaded. They were self-governing. They did what they wanted to do. There's one passage, or there's one story that tells of the Babylonians, that they were so ruthless, once they defeated the Egyptians, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the Babylonians, he, he, he defeated them, he then pursued them for another 150 miles to wipe them out completely. He was ruthless. And God was going to use them to judge Judah, to judge his people. You see, why would God do that? Well, for years, Judah had followed Israel in idolatry. They hadn't trusted God. They believed in all sorts of other things apart from God. You read about it in 2 Kings, that, 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 that Judah were, they had many kings on the throne, and most of those kings, the Bible says, oh, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And there was one king particularly, a guy called Manasseh, who was really evil. His son, Josiah, was good. His son was evil. And what it says is, even though Josiah had been good, God was so fed up with them, he was going to punish them. He was going to punish their idolatry. And he punishes it in such a way that I read in one of the commentaries, there came a point where, actually, since that time, when, when Babylon attacked Judah, like the people of God, Israel, the Jews, they have never gone into idolatry again since that time. They've never gone to the point where they just believe any old thing. Even now, the Jews don't believe anything. They still believe in the one God. They're not chasing after lots of things since that time. It was so dealt with at that moment. And you think, why did God do that? Why did God feel he had to do that? And the answer is really quite simple, although it's quite scary. You see, God values faithfulness. When God talks about, I won't share my glory with another, he's not just saying something. It's not just a phrase. It's a reality. God had got fed up with sharing himself with other gods with his people choosing to believe and follow this and they're worshipping the poles here and the this there. He had got fed up with that. He wanted worship for himself. He wanted faithful people. That's what he wanted. That's what he desired. And he would do whatever he needed to do to get that. You see, we get a hint of how God sees faithfulness and worship Right at the beginning of the Bible, when God punishes Adam and Eve for what? Eating an apple. So they eat an apple, and as a result of eating that apple, they're banished from paradise, and sin enters the world. Why? Because in the end, God wants faithfulness in his people. He seeks for faithfulness. He seeks for for people who put him on the throne. He's not looking for sharing himself with others. Another hint at how God sees it is the fact that his answer to the problem of their sin was to send his own son. It wasn't convoluted. It was to send the very son that he loved 
He sent his own son to come into the earth in order that he could form a faithful people. In order that he could have a righteous people who wouldn't go all over the place and have lots of other gods, but they would make him their God. In many ways, it was unbelievable what he did. Really, you look back to Adam and Eve, you look with the Babylonians, it's unbelievable that God would respond like that. But he values faithfulness. He hates sin. But he loves people. I mean, the John 3.17 talks about, John 3.16 we know, but John 3.17 talks about God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. That was always his intention, was to save the world through him. But he won't live or accept idolatry, unfaithfulness, false worship. He doesn't accept it. And he shows himself powerful to form a people that would become the kind of people that would love him. You see, we can miss that in Habakkuk because we can just look at the externals of, oh, what's all this evil about? God's using the Babylonians for things. Why is he doing that? It doesn't make any sense to me. But in the end, there are reasons why God judges. There are reasons why he comes and ultimately came in the form of his son. So what can we take from this passage? And really, I've said it, I'm just repeating, by way of comfort, we can take this. God is in control. It might not appear like that to you and to I, but he is. If, if, you, if you led a large corporation, a large company, and so you sat in all the key meetings that were going on and you knew what was going on in the company and you knew the direction it needed to go, if one of your employees begins to panic because maybe the photocopy has stopped working and they're, they're not sure what to do about this order down here, yeah, and you don't respond to that immediately, it's not necessarily because you don't care. It's simply because you see more. You see the end from the beginning. You see the beginning from the end. And, and, and in the end, that person who's struggling maybe with the photocopier or with that order, they can go, oh my goodness, this company, they don't care. And they can pack their bags and go. Or they can go, oh, do you know what? I just have to, and you don't say this at work, but you know what I mean. I'm just going to have to trust that they know, they know more about this. They know better. And sometimes we just have to trust that God knows better. It doesn't make sense to us that God would punish in the way that he does. But in the end, I have to trust that he knows what he's doing. And I don't know what he's doing. And sometimes I question that, as Habakkuk did. And God doesn't deny the questioning. So he's in control. He raises up the Babylonians. He knows everything. He describes them in detail. He knows them. He values faithfulness so much that he punishes idolatry. It's because I value this, I punish this. And also, and although this seems bizarre, he hears and answers prayer. Because Habakkuk was praying. That lament we read about is Habakkuk praying to God. 
he's bringing his prayers to God. Why are you allowing all this to happen, God? God answers prayer. The truth is he just doesn't always answer it in the way we expect. And then that becomes a hurdle for us because of how we respond. So we need to learn and understand that God is not like we are. Yeah? And this book of Habakkuk, it just shows us God in a light that we don't normally think about because he seems to be allowing this evil thing to happen. Yeah? And, and I can't answer that question. I can't explain why he does that. All I can say is that, and he points to it, and we see it in a couple of weeks, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So I believe him, I trust him. And if I don't do that in the end, I'm not really trusting God. I'm trusting what I think he does what I've seen him do. I trust God operates like this. So what happens when he doesn't operate like that? Because he is not bound by your rules or my rules. No matter how well you've been taught, from how many pulpits you've sat under, how many sermons you've listened to online, God is not bound by the rules. He makes the rules. And he breaks the rules. And he does what pleases him. All you can do, and all I can do, is trust. And that's why his answer to Habakkuk is, watch. He doesn't tell him to do it. He says, watch. Watch and see. Watch and see. So this journey, which in the end leads Habakkuk to a place of strengthened faith, tests his faith and it tests our faith. But if we stick with God on this journey it will deepen your faith and it will deepen your appreciation of God. And when you appreciate God more, when you get further revelations of what God is like, you just love him more. You worship him more deeply because you think, oh my goodness, I did not know you were like that. I didn't know you were so powerful. I didn't know you absolutely knew everything, but you do. You do. Let's pray. Father, though this appears a, a, a sort of a, a moment, a sombre moment, I do thank you for the reality that you, you're a God who's in control. You're a God who knows everything. You're a God who is described as gracious and compassionate. And that although it doesn't make sense to me, and in my situation it, it might not make any sense to me, it doesn't add up, God, I do not go on what I know. I do not choose to respond to you based on my own knowledge and my own understanding. But I do the one thing I can do, and that's to trust. Lord, this morning I put my faith into you again. That despite every situation that comes my way, that doesn't seem to fit, I will trust that you know what you're doing and that you are in control and that you're, you know the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And Father, I pray that we as a church will do that. We will put ourselves into your hands. That despite we don't know what you're doing, 
or how you work or the fact that nothing seems to operate in the way that we would have imagined. We trust you. And Father, as individuals, you know every situation here. Lord, I pray for a people that learn to rest. I pray for a people that learn to trust and that we stop trying and sorting it ourselves. And we go, do you know what? I don't know. So I will look to him. It doesn't appear like I thought it would. It's not happened in the way I imagined. You know, I had certain timescales in my life and nothing seems to have happened. But I will trust him. I will trust him. So I pray for that, O oh God. Pray for that to be our response to this day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Should we finish again to the song? Or should we finish there? Cool. Okay. Don't forget it's the week of prayer. Don't forget you can come to the prayer meeting celebration tonight if you want. Hope to see you next week. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.